Good morning. My name is Adam, one of the pastors here at Bethany. Thanks so much for joining us and Happy New Year. Be the first to welcome you that. I hope you had a great Christmas and you're able to give and receive um, and have a lot of fun there and survive the snow the next morning. I know I saw some pictures on Facebook. Some of you were not so fortunate, uh, but glad you're safe and sound. As we think um, New Year, it's coming right around the corner. Hope all of you party responsibly, have a good time, have fun, but do it responsibly. One of the things that often hits my heart and mind when we come to this time of year is resolutions, is change. And I think some of you, your personalities are like, ah, you just, you know, what do you need that for? But others of you, many of you, this is the time of year we start thinking new start, fresh start. This is the time of year I'm going to lose some weight. This is the time of year I'm going to get, spend more time with my kids. I'm going to get to bed earlier. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to, whatever it is that you begin to think about in resolutions. For some of us, we simply pull our list out from last year and kind of let's just renew that commitment and run at it. Um, for others, it's new starts and uh, et cetera. Uh, came across this cartoon that I think captures the new year well and resolutions. Tommy, there isn't truth to that. In 1993, we had the big fat TV and little skinny guy. In 2013, we've got the little skinny TV and the big fat guy. Uh, So it kind of illustrates, wow, you know, some of us, it's time to change. It's time to uh, make some resolutions. Now, as I think about resolutions, I'm a resolutions guy. I'm a goal guy. I love to set goals. I love to say, what can I get done this year? New start. Let's go at it. But one of the things that I have discovered, uh, I'm just shy of 40. Um, I've got a few years yet, and I hit that big milestone. Uh, But when I was 22 years old, I had this deep internal belief that I could change the world. And I ran at it with everything I had. I mean, I had passion. I had emotion. I had belief and energy that said anything is possible and I can change the world. Well, here I am just shy of 40, and I'm beginning to realize that I can't change my wife. I can't change my kids. I can't change this church. I can't change me most days. And what I've come to realize is I've looked back, maybe some of you can relate to this. If I've looked back over my life, what I've seen is actually a little disturbing When I look back at when I was 22, there are things that I do today that are worse than when I was 22. I haven't gotten better. There's some areas I've actually gone downhill. There's some things I've gotten better, but I have a kind of approach change. I've kind of hit this try and fail kind of cycle, fail and try, try and succeed, succeed succeed and fail, Take two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's three steps forward, four steps back. Um, Sometimes it's one step forward, three steps back. And and again, I get better in some areas and worse in others. And what I've kind of come to in this realization as we talk about change is that picture of try and fail, fail and try. Um, The gospel message, the message of Jesus, it's the message that this church is passionate about, that Jesus came to this earth to die for us. To say, hey, I'm for you. I want a relationship with you, God is saying. So I'm going to come while you're a sinner and I'm going to die for you. I'm going to rise to new life so that you can have new life. And that message is just as much for the Christian as it is for the non-Christian. Sometimes we think that message is a message that's been given to the church to go out and preach to the world, which it is. But it's also a message that we, as if you're a Christian person here, and it's a message that you believe in, it's a message that is for me every single day. And as I approach this change cycle, I see it all the more how much I need Jesus' help. Titus chapter 3, I think, is the verse that captures this well. Uh, Titus 3.8. 
Um, this is an older pastor named Paul uh, to writing to a younger pastor named Titus. That's where the letter gets its name. It's a letter written to him, and it's written to say, here's how you do church. Titus chapter 3, he gets into this section. It's, it's, it's probably my favorite chapter in all the Bible. Uh, and it says this, as he wraps up his kind of discourse to this young pastor, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. Now, I'll talk about these things in a minute. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, this is summing up the entire letter. And he's saying, listen, as you get up, young pastor, and you preach, and you teach, and you talk, one of the things I want you to do is to stress and to hit on these things. These things, if you look, if you go there to Titus 3 this week and maybe read back through, these things are what we call in the theological world justification by faith alone, period. Meaning I am made right, I am justified, I am made just and holy and right before God by Jesus, period. And so he's saying, as you get up in your churches and you teach and you preach, I want you to stress that truth. Hammer it, drive at it, make sure all your messages center on it, that the message of Jesus is central to everything you teach. And it's written not just, this is not just written to those who don't know Jesus, says, I want you to do this and teach these things to those who would call themselves Christians. In other words, we never kind of get past the gospel. Too often... You've heard me say this many times if you've been at the church for any length of time. Too often, I think that I needed Jesus to get into heaven and into Christianity. But now that I'm in, ah, it's not so much for me anymore. Um, and what we begin to do is we begin to think that, you know, I needed Jesus to get in. But now that I'm in, it's up to me to stay in. How many of you ever thought that? Maybe you think that. There's an official heresy that's actually, they give it a name. It's called Pelagianism. And it basically says, I do my part and God does his part. And we would hear at Bethany would say, you know, that's really not what the Bible teaches. Um, the Bible doesn't teach that I do my part and God does his part. The Bible doesn't teach that uh, if you kind of run the line of that, my faith no longer uh, is about Christ's performance in my behalf, but rather my performance for him. And that's just, it's not what we believe the Bible teaches. In fact, we kind of say, you know, a guy by the name of J.D. Greer, who's a well-known author, um, pastor, says it this way. God's plan is not to move us beyond the gospel, that message of Jesus, but to steer us more deeply into it. I never get past the message of Jesus. And that's that pastor writing to the younger pastor, stress these things, stress the message of Jesus. Matter of fact, what I've learned when it comes to change, when it comes to resolutions, the smaller I get, the easier it is to see the bigness of God. So when I really focus on the message and how really it's not about me, life isn't about me, but as I really begin to get small and realize how insignificant I really am when it comes to all of eternity and how sinful I can really be, what happens is as I get smaller, God looks bigger. And it's really kind of a cool thing. I end up worshiping him and I'm grateful for what he's done. Um, I realize that I'm far more incapable than I ever thought, but God is far more capable than I ever hoped. And it's really kind of this cool thing. Atulian Tavijan, an author that some of you, matter of fact, if you were in our adult classes this past uh, fall, we, you went through a book written by him. Um, and he says this. It's a long quote, so I threw it up in the screen so you guys can kind of see it. He says, God's love for me. 
His approval and commitment to me doesn't ride on my transformation, but on Jesus' substitution. It means Jesus came to switch lives, to offer his life for my life. Jesus is infallibly devoted to us in spite of our inconsistent devotion to him. The gospel, the message of Jesus, is not a command to hang on to Jesus. It's a promise that no matter how weak your faith and how unsuccessful your effort may be, God is always holding on to you. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message that we stand on and we want to preach week in and week out. Matter of fact, if you're simply looking, if you're here this morning, you simply want change. You want to change some behavior. You want to reform some, some things that you do. What I have learned, you actually don't need Jesus. What I think you need is a life coach, maybe a good counselor, maybe a little cheerleading section in your life to kind of, you know, put the pom-poms together and cheer, cheer you on. Uh, maybe you need an accountability partner or a good friend. But if you're simply looking to change behavior, to quit smoking, to quit sleeping around, to quit maybe drinking too much alcohol or to spend more time with the kids or to behavioral change, you don't need Jesus to do it. Now, he'll help, and we certainly don't want to diminish that, but you don't really need Jesus. We never, ever, ever outgrow our need for grace, ever. Now, that's just kind of the intro. You've heard me say things like this. If you've been at the church for any length of time, whether it's one month or four years, this is that what I've just shared is my heart as a pastor. I am passionate about Jesus, period. We don't add things to it. We, we come into the Christian faith by Jesus' grace and mercy, and we grow in the Christian faith by Jesus' grace and mercy. Now, if you have tracked with that and you hear that, or maybe that's been a new thought to you, inevitably a question gets raised, and it's a really good question. And if you're raising it in your mind or have ever raised it in your mind, it means you're engaged with the issue. And I'm excited to entertain the question. The question goes like this or something like this. Adam, doesn't the Bible say in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead? Or maybe the question goes like this. Adam, you talk about all this free grace and this free living and grace, 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 grace. And it's not up to how you perform. It's about what Jesus' performance is for you. And it's not up about your work. It's about Jesus' work for you. And and the Bible doesn't come to make you, the Bible comes not to make you better, but to make you new and alive. Yeah, I hear all that, Adam. But how about the hard work, the effort, the blood, sweat, and tears of Christian walk and life? How about that? Don't those two things contradict one another? And I say, you know what, what is, the scary thing to me is how we've in the Christian world kind of pushed these two things aside as though works and free grace and, and freedom in Christ are two separate things. So my heart this morning is to talk about how we bring the two together in a beautiful way and how the scriptures bring them together. And I think as we understand it, it'll really help us in our change efforts as we hit the new year. And I'd sum it up by saying this is kind of the big idea. Freedom is actually found in discipline. You are free in Christ. You're a new creation if you're a Christian. You're brand new. Now, to live in that freedom requires discipline. To experience that freedom, to really enjoy life, and to really run free in life takes discipline. Our culture teaches something very different. Matter of fact, if you've seen the movie Frozen, any of you have seen the movie This Holiday with Your Kids, that theme actually runs throughout the movie. 
There's this idea of constraint and restriction. And finally, the, the, the older sister gets to throw off her constraint and thinks she's now found freedom. And it's kind of the whole tension around that. Our culture kind of teaches the very opposite of this, that freedom is actually found by throwing off constraints. I would say the gospel message of Jesus teaches that freedom, and I think common sense, you'll, as you guys think through this, as we think through this, freedom actually comes through great discipline. Now, a couple of verses to undergird this, and then we're going to look at one together. First one is found in 1 Corinthians 9, written by a guy named Paul. Who, was, who set out to destroy the early Christians, and then he became a Christian himself, and then he starts planting churches all over the place. And he writes this message. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Amen. None of us have come here this morning to be losers. All of you are here because you want to win. None of you want to get out of bed tomorrow. None of you want to go to work or to school next week since you have office. None of you want to get there and say, I want to be the biggest loser in the world. We want to win. We want to get to the end of the race and be winners. And Paul taps into this picture. Everyone who competes in the games, he goes on to say, goes into strict training, discipline, hard work. Now they do it. Why do they train? They do it to get a crown that will not last a trophy or, you know, some kind of metal to hang or plaque to put in the wall. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, there's a verse with blood, sweat, and tears. There's a verse that I'm going to be honest, I don't live in often. I'm not one that beats my body and really pushes hard through stuff. Another verse that I um, think about is this thought kind of comes up, the thought of discipline and hard work. For this very reason, make every effort. See the word effort? That word in the original language is like this this hard, gut-wrenching sweat. Just pour it all out. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection. Now, if you look at that list, this magnificent list that one builds next, self-control, discipline. Self-control is actually, this is one of these fun things, self-control is actually a fruit of the spirit. It's something that God gives you, but you're like, well, how can it be self-control if it's a fruit of the spirit? And it, but again, it's this discipline and somehow it all comes together. Now it goes on, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, key thought, hold on to that, we're going to come to that thought later on. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, that whole list, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. And the final verse I put up, just to kind of this effort picture, all scripture, this whole Bible, all of it, beginning to end, is God-breathed, meaning God, yes, it's written by humans, but God breathed into them. It's actually words of God, and it's useful. So it's very practical, and here's what it's practical for. It's practical for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. See the word training? Again, it's this word that captures hard work, effort, gutted out. Training in righteousness so that the servant of God, the Christian, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, you read those verses, you say, no, wait a minute, Adam, you talk all the time that it's not about your performance and your work. It's about what Jesus has done for you. You know, how do you make all these verses 
Makes sense then. Look with me at John chapter 8. I think Jesus does it in a beautiful way. If you're new to the Bible or a skeptic of the Bible, um, you will find John 8, roughly three quarters of the way through. You're going to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then a book, John. Now, these are in the, what we call the Gospels. They're, they're just accounts of Jesus' life, the accounts of the story of Jesus. John uh, was one of the writers who took in Jesus' life, and John was, was hands down Jesus' closest friend on earth his closest earthly human friend. And he was closer to Jesus than anyone else. And he writes a very intimate account of the things that he heard Jesus say and the things that he took in and saw and smelled and touched and felt, all his senses kind of explored. John 8, he records this story. The tension is mounting around Jesus' ministry. Jesus is out speaking and and there's this tension that's beginning to form. I see it kind of happen in John 6, 7, 8. And so it kind of gets to this thing, verse 31, it says this. This group of people gathers, and it says to the Jews who had believed him. So there's this group of people, Jewish people, religious people, who took Jesus at his word. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He is who he says he is. They believed. In other words, we'd say they're Christians. Jesus said, so he's going to talk to these people who believe him. He says this, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Now, there's a famous verse then that follows that if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard this. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? How many of you, even if you're not, have ever read the Bible, you've probably heard that statement in a movie or on TV or somewhere. You've heard the truth will set you free. Now, as I've looked at this verse over the years, I went to a school in upstate New York, a Bible school. And they, when I was first, and I didn't know a lot about, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school, but believe it or not, I didn't really internalize this, this book. I was taught it, but I didn't really internalize it. I get to this Bible school and they hammered on this principle. They said, the truth will set you free. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And I just encountered the Bible afresh for the very first time. And I just devoured it beginning to end. I soaked it up. I began to find freedom in my life. I loved it. And this, they, they hammered, they preached all this verse was kind of their theme verse for the entire school that know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'd go to missions trips in New York city, go out to people in the streets and we would just open up the Bible, play basketball with, and then we'd open the Bible up and I'd give them the truth. And man, I, I just, I was on a truth quest. Every person I could run into every friend I had from high school, every, every inner family member, man, if there was truth to be given, I was given it. I then get to my first official ministry in central Pennsylvania. And again, I'm on this truth quest. Just give truth. My answer to everything was a Bible verse, more truth, more truth, more truth. I then, after four years of serving there, move on to Charlotte, North Carolina. But before I move, a friend and a mentor said to me, Adam, whenever you transition from one job to the next, it's usually helpful to sit down and just journal about your lessons. What have you learned? Because as you make this transition, it's a great time to start afresh and start anew. And so if there's things that haven't worked for you, it's a good time to stop and acknowledge those things and put a plan together to start new in a new ministry. So I sat down and I took that as a challenge and I began to write. And here's the top thing that I gleaned. I wrote at the top of my journal after a lot of reflection, truth does not transform. Now I didn't have a Bible verse to stick to that. I just thought that's my observation in life. 
Now, the reason I observe that is because there were a lot of teenagers, for instance, that I worked with in Mifflin County who grew up in Christian homes as I did, who had this book. As a matter of fact, there were some teenagers that knew this book better than I did as a pastor. They could quote things to me that I just, I'm like, where did you find that? And I remember there were some that I would talk to before I'd preach because I could get better verses from them than I could find myself. And I, and I just began to realize, and, but I, what I saw in their lives was not a transformed life. And I guarantee you that those of you in well, practically everyone in this room probably knows someone like that. Maybe it's your mom or your dad. Maybe it's your son or your daughter, your neighbor. Maybe it's the person you're sitting beside. They know the Bible. They know it really well. They even preach it to others, but they live like hell. And they are like, this hasn't transformed anything in their life. So I write this thought, truth does not transform. But then I, then I hit square in my mind this verse, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so I thought, well, how do I make this make sense? How do I reconcile it? I had this tension in my heart. I'm like, what do I do? So for the next year to three years, I just allowed that tension to set in and allowed it to push in. And, and I just thought, okay, let's push out the boxes that I've created and allow the tension to, to lead me to deeper truth. So I came back and, and through that year to three years, I just meditated on John chapter eight and something came off the pages to me. Matter of fact, some of you've probably already seen it. Look at verse 32. Those of you who have an NIV Bible, what's the word that it starts with? Then. So it's this if then. So I thought, well, then, so that means something's got to come before it. So it's then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what comes before it? If you look in verse 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it put it all together for me. And hopefully as I share, it'll help you this morning too. It's my my heart this morning. What I began to discover in different translations, you're going to read this verse differently. Some, you know, in the NIV as I'm reading, if you hold to my teaching, some will say, if you abide in my teaching, some will say, if you live in my teaching, some will say, if you follow my, and it's this picture of saying, I'm a Christian I know what Jesus has taught me. I am going to do it, practice it, live it, abide in it. And as I do these things, then I will know these things and then I will be set free. And it's interesting to me in the Christian church, we seem to have reversed this. We put a lot of emphasis on what's happening right now. The pastor preaching truth to transform the mind so that you will know something so that you'll be set free. But it's interesting, this verse says you actually have to do something before you know something, before you find freedom. I'm like, whoa. And that's where discipline comes in. I want to talk about discipline this morning. I think it's something I don't talk about a lot from the stage, and I think it's something we, we don't, we, what do we do with discipline and grace? How do these two things come together? Here's, I just want to kind of throw a couple thoughts at it. Some of these are going to be a little disjointed. I apologize ahead of time. Um, I'm going to try my best to connect them for us. First thing, first thought. Grace does not mean that you will have sufficient strength and insight infused into your being in the moment of need. There is this teaching that runs in the church that says, well, I'm a Christian 
And I don't need to be disciplined. I am free. I'm not a legalist. I am free. And when I am in need, God is going to, boom, give me what I need. I don't find that taught in the scriptures. God can certainly do that. God is a big God and God works in crazy ways. But what I find in the scriptures is this. The whole section, 2 Corinthians 3.18 into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. And we will all with unveiled faces, talking of Christian people, contemplate the Lord's glory. So if you're a Christian, you have an unveiled face so you can see God in his fullness. You understand who he is. And as you do that, you are being, look at this, you are being transformed. So it's not an instantaneous wham. As you contemplate the Lord's glory, you are being transformed into his image. Now catch this next phrase, with ever increasing glory. The scriptures don't teach radical instantaneous change. It can happen. And I've seen some of you, I've even seen some of your lives. It does happen. But the standard, the common reality for most of us is if I am going to grow, it is a process of looking in to see who God is in a consistent way, being, tr- being transformed consistently with ever-increasing glory. It's not something that, bang, just infuses me with this in- momentaneous strength. The next thought. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Maybe you want to look at it this week. I don't want to take the time to look at it now. But it's this verse that says something very interesting. Jesus goes away with his, with his three friends. Jesus is about ready to die, and he's troubled in his spirit, really troubled. And he brings his three friends, his closest friends, and he says, guys, please hang out here and pray. So they begin to pray. It's late at night, and they do what most of us would do. I mean, they fall asleep. Have you ever done that, tried to pray, and you fall asleep? Jesus comes back to him. He's like, guys, what's going on? He does this three times and finds him sleeping. And then Jesus says something very, very interesting. He says, you know what, guys? The spirit is willing. Some of you can repeat this, but what? The body is weak. Again, huge insight when it comes to discipline. What Jesus teaches is when we become a Christian, We have a brand new, matter of fact, the early parts of our Bible, the Old Testament prophets, the ones that foretold of the coming of Jesus said, you will have a new heart. You will be made new on the inside. Jesus teaches that you are made new. If you're here in this room and you are a Christian, you are transformed from the inside out. However, we still live in a body that has sin in it. You didn't get your new body yet. Now, when you get to heaven, you're going to get a new body. But as it stands now, you have this internal dwelling, this spirit inside of you, living inside of a body that's still sinful. And your spirit has desires, strong desires, that go against what the body wants at times. So our disciplines, actually, what happens is our disciplines are to get our body in sync with our spirit. It's not about being, gaining approval with God. It's not about gaining God's favor. It's not about making God happy. It's about saying, I have these internal drives. I am made new in the inside, and I want to be like Christ. I want this, but I have this body that wars against me. And I've got to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, beat back this body with hard work and discipline so that I can bring it in parallel with what my spirit wants. Another thought I'd throw out. When we talk about grace, 
and we talk about discipline, what I fear sometimes, I'm going to borrow a thought from a guy by the name of Judah Smith. Wrote a book, Jesus Is. What I fear happens is when we talk about grace, we talk about a theological concept. But grace is not a theological concept. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus. And here's how this changes the word discipline for me. There isn't a person in this room, I don't think, that will, that will disagree with this. We do painful and very hard things for the people we love. Do you not? Those of you who are married, think back to your dating years. You made a fool of yourself, did you not? You did some really crazy things. Some things you look back and think, what was I thinking? What you were thinking was you were in love. You were radically in love. And the people that we love, we do hard things for. Matter of fact, not only this doesn't go with people. If you love your job, you sacrifice a lot to fulfill that job. If you love your kids, you do some really hard things for your kids. If you love your house or love the clothes that you're wearing or whatever it is that you love, your computer, your iPad, the new little toy you got for Christmas, you will do hard things to get it. And when we understand that the Christian faith is about a person, his name is Jesus. Grace is a person. His name is Jesus. We will do hard things for him because we love him. I think that's another one, I think, and that begins to make discipline kind of come into view. The other thing I'd say, here's another thought. Again, I told you somebody's going to be disjointed. I apologize. (laughs) Another thought. Discipline, none of us discipline ourselves for the discipline itself. In other words, you saw some, this, this apparatus here. I would kill to be able to do something with this. I've said for years, I would love to play the guitar. When I was in college, my roommates all played, the, almost all of them played the guitar. And I begged them, can you guys just teach me? And they finally took a thing from me. Enter Sandman, some of you know Metallica. I, I would say it right up front here. They, they, it's a really easy, I guess, a chord progression or whatever it's called. So I learned, I, I learned but I strummed that thing over and over. And my fingers are trying to, and I just finally was, I can't do this. And they finally took it and said, we aren't working with you anymore, Adam, because you have no musical aptitude whatsoever. But those of you who do, why do you practice the guitar? Why do you discipline yourself? Do you discipline yourself for this discipline's sake? Why do you do it? You do it because you want to play well. Those of you who are in sports, why do you discipline yourself in a thing called practice? Do you do it because you want to practice? No. Matter of fact, talk to most athletes, they hate practice. If practice is all it was, I mean, that's why I I don't like cross country. Those of you who are cross-country runners, I don't understand you guys. Cross-country, it like takes all of the pain of all sport and puts it and makes it a sport. I'm like, why do you do that? I mean, it's, but we don't like practice. We don't practice for practice sake. We practice to play well. We practice to perform in the game well. We practice to, to play the instrument well. And for some reason, the Christian community, we've begun to take our disciplines like reading the Bible, prayer, taking rest and a Sabbath, and we kind of make it about those things instead of something bigger that's getting us ready for something much bigger. See, the Christian life, again, I think sometimes what we've done with Christianity is made it mental. You come, you sit, you listen. You leave, you read your Bible, you pray. We make it mental. But the Christian life is more than mental. It's also about faith that works and lives. 
And the disciplines are a way of taking the mental and fleshing them out in a practical way so that we find freedom. And that's where John 8 comes in. It's about taking those things that I've heard and I've understood and I internalize. And I say, I'm abiding, I'm living in, I'm in Christ. I'm going to take those things and I'm going to practice them. I'm going to put them into practice and live them out. Again, freedom is found in discipline. Matter of fact, if you, some of you are going to watch, some of you are hoping you watch the Eagles win this evening. Or some of you Steeler fans, I know there's some Steeler fans here. I'm a Dolphins fan, and it's Steelers or the Dolphins. The two can't get in. It's going to come down to one of them. But as you watch these great athletes this afternoon, what makes them great? Yes, they have natural ability. But you'll watch one-handed catches and crazy things happen on the field. We're like, whoa, look at the freedom they have on the field. Where'd the freedom come from? It came because they disciplined themselves. The more disciplined the player, the more free he is on the field. And the same thing goes for life. The more disciplined you are in life, the freer you'll be to live life. The thing I'd say with sports, sports teach us a lot on this. I was, um, I know some of you are going to have a hard time believing this, but hang on. I was a state champion power lifter, went on to the state championships in power, placed fifth in the state of Pennsylvania when I was in the amateur level. I don't look like it anymore. Some of you go, well, Adam, you need to get back in there. I had a coach, and this was revolutionary for me as a young boy. I'd want to hit the gym every day, and I'd hit it every day. And, I'd, and he'd find somebody, Adam, you cannot be here every day. Matter of fact, what he would do, matter of fact, before we went on to the state championship meet, he actually had us take three weeks off. I don't want you to touch a weight for three weeks. I said, what? Are you kidding me? Because what he taught us, I think, is true in the spiritual life, too. He said the human body grows and strengthens in rest, not during stress. Stress and hard work that you, you exert on your body tells your body it needs to strengthen itself. It's when you stop and rest that your body builds strength. And so he says, so if you push, if you work your legs today and work them tomorrow and work them the next day, you're actually going to weaken your muscles, not strengthen them. And what I've found with discipline is in the Christian life, some of us run a hundred miles an hour and we never stop and rest. And in the stressful moments, you do not grow. You weaken. You've got to stop and rest and allow the rest to build strength. And the disciplines of prayer, reading your Bible, taking a Sabbath, those intentional disciplines are things designed to strengthen you and help you grow and become more like Christ. But it's something that's done very intentionally. Now, I want to give some very practical help on this one. How do you develop rituals and habits, disciplines? The experts who study this, I'm borrowing this. This is not me. This is, this is you can go online and you can read books and you can gain some of the same information. They say that you, every one of us in this room can develop a habit that becomes automatic. It takes roughly an average 66 days. The average, some of you can do it faster, but the average person takes 66 days of continual practice till something becomes what they term automatic. So in other words, if you say, I'm going to commit to reading my Bible as a discipline I'm going to work on, I'm going to journal 
They say that it's going to take 60 consistent, continual days until you just find it natural and easy to get out of bed early to take a half an hour to read your Bible. The other thing they'll teach is this. I'll throw this one out for practical help. The minute you feel the desire to do it, so some of you have eaten way too much this, this, this past week. You say, I need to lose 10 pounds. You feel it. You internalize it. They say, if you don't do something physically in the next three days, you'll never do it. So in other words, if you're sitting here this morning, say, you know what? I'd love to start reading my Bible regularly every day and praying and spending time with God. If you feel that now, if you don't start it by Wednesday and then do it every single day for 60 plus days, you'll never accomplish it as a habit. It'll never just become natural to you. It'll always be hard work. The other thing they talk about is you read and you read the literature and and books and people have spent their lives studying these things is a thing called a keystone habit. Now, a keystone habit runs a lot like the commercial you've seen on TV for direct TV. I'm going to play the commercial here in a minute, but it's where you do one thing and the one thing leads to a whole chain reaction. Okay. So watch this commercial. Then I'll talk about how it works with uh, the Christian disciplines. Some of you are familiar with that whole, they got a whole string of them and they're, they're rich. They are, whoever came up with that ad campaign are their geniuses. But that is in essence, a keystone habit in reverse towards the negative. What people who talk about habits and write about this is they say, what you do, if you want to change your life, if there's some habits you want to instill, they say, don't pick three, don't even pick two, don't pick four, five, or 10, pick one. And what happens is you pick one. It doesn't even matter what it is. Just pick one that you say, I need to change and make it a habit. Go at it for 60 days. And what'll happen is it'll start a chain reaction. So for example, you may say, I want to get to bed earlier. That'd be one I'd pick. I mean, I get to bed consistently after midnight and I am, then I drag myself every morning to get out and it's just miserable then the whole next day. So maybe for me, it'd be, let's go to bed every night by 10 o'clock and I'd be cutting two hours off of my day. Now, so a keystone habit, what they teach is now, because I'm going to bed at 10, it starts a chain reaction. I soon find more strength and I get out of bed earlier. When I get out of bed earlier, I then spend time in my consistent quiet time. I get a healthier breakfast because I get a healthier breakfast. I have more energy because I have more energy. I get, and, and it goes, it's this whole string of events all because I did the keystone habit of go to bed two hours earlier every day. So again, just some practical help for what it's worth. I wouldn't go out of here and tackle. So one of the things that we as a church teach, our keystone habit, if you will, is read your Bible. Don't come here depending on Adam or Chris or, or anyone else that preaches from this stage to, to be your nourishment. I'm glad, I hope you get from this. I hope you come and can take away from this service. We hope your spirit is strengthened and you're encouraged. But the way I liken it, if you're depending on this service for your spiritual growth solely, it's like coming to a great meal, watching me eat it, and then put it back on the plate for you, if if you know what I'm saying, and then give it to you and say, here, now you go chew on it. I mean, it's it's a sick thought, isn't it? But that's what we do at times. If you guys just, again, I hope you take, that's, that's the purpose of this service. So our keystone habit would be, again, and we do a lot of, we put a lot of energy into this. So we put a reading plan together. This year we put a journal that's actually the reading plan is going to run in connection with our services. So 
So this, if you already picked the journal up, they're available out there. You saw on page 10, there's even a place to take notes this morning. And then you'll see a reading plan. You'll see John 8 is one of the verses and the verses around it. So we're encouraging you to read those verses and meditate on them. And it'll work down through it. So again, our keystone habit would be say, hey, if you're going to do one thing this new year, one discipline in your relationship with Christ, make it read the Bible and pray. What we would call a quiet time is the buzzword is the way that you may have heard it referred to. And again, put the journals together. The journals are available to you. All of you in your bulletins this morning should have received the actual reading plan. Um, so you have it there all laid out for you. And we're going to put, again, you only see a quarter of the year there. So you'll get these throughout the year that will pass these out to you um, or get the journal. The journal, again, is a $5 recommended donation. If you can't afford that, just take it. We're just trying to cover the cost of the printing. But if you truly can't afford the 5 or $10, because maybe there's two of you, um, take it. And as long as you use it, that's cool. Now, to wrap this up, I want to end with this verse to kind of land the plane. Second Peter 1, 3. This is the verse. If you remember the verses earlier where we say add to goodness, self-control, and had a whole long list of things to get better at, this is the verse that kind of leads into that. It says, his divine power, it's talking about God. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Those of you in this room that would say you are a Christian, you have everything you need to live a godly life. And if you look at this verse, where does it come from? It's from him through our knowledge of him. So what we call a daily quiet time, this kind of brings the discipline back to the grace point. What a daily quiet time is, is sitting down, not to learn new truths, though you will do that. Not to figure out ways of things you need to change and think, though you will do that. But to simply sit down and meet and interact with the living creator God of the universe. And one of the things that disheartens me in the church today, a church in America, I'll say. This isn't true in places like China and other places, but I, I see it true in America. The spiritual life is an interaction with a living, personal, creator, powerful God. And it is a complete delusion to suppose that that can be carried on sloppily. And it disheartens me at times to see, we at times think, well, I'm a Christian, so I can just live as I want and do as I want and go as I want. And, and, and it's just crazy. The Christian faith is about interacting with the personal, powerful creator God who's made you and the rest of this world. And the Bible talks a lot about how, hey, let's do that and do that well. Yes, he takes you as you are. Yes, you can't outsin his grace. Absolutely. But then when you're in that relationship, that spirit that's a new and alive in you should drive and compel you to want to say, I want to know this God and know him well. So as I look at this verse, what I see about Christian growth and change and processing that, um, it does not involve becoming stronger and stronger and more competent. I think it actually does the opposite. Christian growth actually involves becoming more and more aware of just how weak you are. That's the biggest difference between age 22, I mentioned earlier, and today. I realize what I don't know. (laughs) At 22, I thought I knew it all. Today, I realize what I don't know. At 22, I didn't realize 
how deeply sinful and how my sin really impacts another human being. Today I'm married and have four kids. And I watch the depth of my sin impact people that I love dearly. And I understand today more than ever how weak I am. And what I've found is the more you understand your weakness, that's when growth actually begins. So Christian growth is not this idea of get stronger, 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 better, better, better. It actually is weaker and more incompetent. And we understand then just how strong we are in Jesus. When we stay engaged with and seek to know this creator God that this verse talks about, and we stop focusing on our need to get better, we really just erase that out. If you really say this new year, if I could do one thing, it's spend personal time daily getting to know this God. What ends up happening is you start to get better. But when we focus on getting better, what I've found happens is we actually don't get better at all. We actually get worse at times. And when I realize that I never outgrow the gospel of Jesus ever, 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 ever. And no matter how unfaithful I am to God, he will remain faithful to me. What ends up happening, my gratitude in that relationship produces joy, which then drives me to, to discipline and hard work to do some things to say, thank you, God. And I want this relationship with you and I want to know you well. Because I want to know you well, I'm going to do some hard, crazy things to get to know you. But those hard, please hear this, those hard, crazy things are not earning merit with God. They're not gaining God's approval. They aren't keeping me in the faith. They're simply an outgrowth of saying, I want to know this creator God of the universe. I want to know him one who loves me more than I can ever fathom and understand. And because of that, the outgrowth then is I'm going to do some hard, crazy things. I'm going to lay myself down and I'm going to die daily and I'm going to, I'm going to beat my body and I'm going to train myself and I'm going to discipline myself so I can grow in my relationship with Jesus. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for the intricacies of your word. God, this morning as we kind of wrestle with this tension of this free grace, this unmerited favor that you bestow upon us, which is so awesome, it's amazing, it's great, it's, it's just wow. And I pray that we never, ever, ever take it for granted. That we would continue to meditate on it and dig deeper into it. But God, then that free grace, that free life that you've given us produces in us then a desire a spirit that's living inside of us that's saying, I want to live well. And God, so help us to be people, those that are in this room that are Christians, to be people that don't take that relationship with you for granted, that don't do, go about it in a sloppy manner, but that say, hey, I'm going to commit this year to taking time on a daily basis to sit down with my Creator with the one who loves me more than anyone else, with the one who knows me more than anyone else, with the one who is for me more than anyone else in this world ever will be, for the one who loves me enough to discipline, for the one who loves me enough to hold me and let me cry, for the one who loves me enough to let me push back and wrestle and say hard things, for the one, for the one who loves me. Help us to be people 
to commit to spending daily time with you in your word and communicating with you in prayer. And God, for those that are here this morning that would say, you know what, Ah, this is a little foreign to me. I'm not even sure I know who the creator of the universe is, and I'm not sure I know who Jesus is, or I've never really placed my faith in a person named Jesus. God, I pray this morning be the morning where they push into that. Maybe this morning is the morning where they just realize, wow, it's just a matter of me admitting I'm weak and I can't do it without help. Maybe this morning is the morning they accept Jesus for the very first time as their personal Savior. God, thank you so much for Jesus. And may we learn as a response of love to lay ourselves down and discipline ourselves and work hard so that we can enjoy the freedoms of life that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.